We're turning in the Word of God to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter and chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 1 down to the end of this chapter. One Peter chapter 5, and reading from verse number 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being ensamples to the flock. When the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. For the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. I'm going to turn back in the Scriptures to Philemon, back to the studies we've been thinking about there, to Philemon. And we're going to be thinking of the verse that we find in verses 8 and 9. But let me read from verse number 1 down to verse 9 to give us the context once more. Philemon, verses 8 and 9. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward all the, the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. The communication of thy faith may become effectual, by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, as we come to Philemon, Paul has now come to the end of bringing those greetings that he had been issuing, and they've come to Philemon, but also, by extension, to the church meeting in his home at Colossae. 
And we have seen how Paul brought these warm greetings to the people that he dearly loved. Philemon, Athia, Archippus are mentioned in particular in verses 1 and 2. And we find that he brings the, great, the greeting and the grace of Christ to them. And it's a wonderful reminder that they are what they are in Christ. That the fellowship that they have exists because and only because of their union to Christ. It's not based upon just a common love of things. It's not based upon just a common interest they have, but they are recipients together of the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus. And that is about the foundation. That is the basis of their unity. And so when we think about the church here at Colossae, that is what it's founded upon, the grace and peace of the Lord Je from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is not a club, it's not a club of even like-minded individuals, but the church is something which is organic, it is living. Paul would say in another place how that we are living stones together. And so the basis of our gathering is not merely upon an intellectual uh, com compliance or emotional consent, but rather upon a common experience and a living reality of being brought savingly to faith in Christ through the gospel. And so Paul is there writing to them and reminding them of the grace and peace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we think about the gathering of the church, the local body of believers, it is like no other thing that we find upon earth. And it's very interesting at the moment with all of the restrictions that are being applied by government in regards to COVID, that the church sometimes falls in between the various sectors. And the, the world and the government are trying to, to work out quite how the church fits. Is it a social club? Is it a, a leisure activity that people go to spend their time? Is it an educational thing? Is it something which is essential? And I'm sure the government has been struggling to try and pigeonhole the church and put it into a box so that they might be able to understand it. And that's perhaps a reason why we have felt that there have been some inconsistencies and perhaps we felt some injustices in regards to opening uh, churches and perhaps the lockdown at the beginning. And so that is how the world views it. Well, whilst that may be the case, that the world doesn't understand the church, it is perhaps also true that the church doesn't also understand itself as to what it ought to be and what it is in Christ. And so, it's no surprise that the world is confused if the church is confused and if the church has been acting more and more like the world itself. When the church looks like the world, is managed like the world would manage it, works like the world, then there's no surprise when they try to understand it in worldly terms. And this is a serious problem if this is what is happening in the local expression of the universal church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But these believers are one in Christ in Colossae, and it is only because of their union to Christ. They had experienced that saving power of the gospel. They had had that wonder and that blessing of being brought by grace 
and to experience the peace that comes through Christ. What they have is entirely free and undeserved, although at, un, uh, at unestimable cost to Christ. And the result is that they who were at enmity to God are now brought near to him. They have peace with God. The one whom they rebelled against, they are now brought into that family. And so the church is made up of believers. And so you can't say that it's a social club, it's a leisure activity, you can't say it's merely educational. We would argue that it's essential, but as far as the world looks on, it is a mystery. But these believers, they gathered together at the home of Philemon. And so Paul moves on in this epistle and assures Philemon and the church of his prayers for them. He was a man of prayer himself, and this comes out in the frequent mentionings of prayer that Paul makes in the Scriptures. And in order for him to pray effectively and uh, with a sense of understanding, he has to understand their circumstance, what they're going through, the trials and difficulties that perhaps they are facing. And we know that Paul would have heard from Epaphras. If you read uh, Colossians, you find that Epaphras has visited, and there he would have shared concerning some of the difficulties that they were facing as a church. Not only was Paul a man who prayed himself, but he was a man who believed in the power of prayer. You might remember this from a few weeks ago. And even in this epistle, you will find later on in verse 22, he is praying and he's asking them to pray for him that he may be able to be delivered to them. Uh, verse 22, but with all prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. And so he expects an answer to this petition, the prayers of the saints bringing. And so coupled with this, he desires the prayers of God's people. And he recognises time and again of his weakness, his vulnerability, his failings. He doesn't describe or consider himself to be a super-Christian or a super-apostle, but rather the one that needed help from heaven. And he needs the prayers of the saints, not just the ritual of them praying, but he needs them to plead on his behalf at that throne of grace. He needs the strength of God. He needs that strength of Christ enabled to stand when the buffets of Satan come upon him. Paul has heard concerning their faith and love, the faith and love to Christ, but indeed their love one to another as well. Philemon is a hospitable man who's opened his home. Uh, perhaps there would be financial implications, perhaps inconveniences and sacrifices that he and his family had to make. And so... Paul had heard of his testimony. And when we think about our testimony, it is certainly on show. We're very much visible to the world. The more outspoken we are, perhaps more judgmental we are, the greater the world we're looking on. And it's important, as we thought previously, that our profession is matched by our actions and our words. And the world is desperate to see us fail, and it's desperate to find evidence of hypocrisy in our lives. Perhaps even other believers are keen to see a discord between our profession and our manner of life. But Paul has seen, Paul has heard of the consistent testimony of Philemon and the brethren at Colossae, something which is very commendable. But as we come this evening to verses 8 and 9, we come, as it were, to the subject matter of the epistle. 
Why is Paul writing to Philemon? What is the purpose of this letter? And I want us just to look at three things. Firstly, the sensitive matter that he's now got to address, the approach that he does not take, and then thirdly, to look at the approach that he does take. So the first thing to notice is the content and the purpose of this letter is to deal with quite a sensitive issue. Paul, as an apostle, would be able, with his authority, to go and deal with issues in local churches, such as we find him doing in many of the epistles. So, for example, in Corinthians, he addresses the issue of that man caught with immorality and had with that situation of being left unchecked by the church. He comes and he goes to the church and deals with it in a very robust and a very severe way, although a very right way. It was very much a church matter. You find the Apostle John similarly tackles Diotrephes in 3 John, that man who loved to have the preeminence in the church. And so John is dealing with that in 3 John. But even in church matters, we find that there is a caution in the Scriptures about the interference of other local bodies in the well-being and in the running of another local congregation. Now, that doesn't mean that there is no concern. For example, we find that there is collection for the saints. Those that were in great need were being provided for and being helped by different congregations, different local assemblies. The persecuted and afflicted were very much concerned. They were very much looked after and cared for by many different churches. Paul could testify how he had been helped in different places by different churches. But when it comes to matters of how a church was functioning, that local body was responsible to the Lord. And we find that it's very much for them to deal with and to call upon others for help if they needed it, and the apostles would act in that way. But you don't find the church at Jerusalem poking their nose into the church at Colossae, and the church at Colossae looking at Ephesus and telling them what they ought to do. They're very much independent under Christ. Now, there is perhaps a little exception that's concerning the Council of Jerusalem. You read about that in Acts chapter 15, and it might be worthwhile just turning to that. Acts chapter 15 and verse 23. Now, this is to do with the whole issue of circumcision. And we find that the, they gather together. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood, and from things strangled and from fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation." And so it was a very specific matter and dealt with only a very limited scope of authority. 
But what we have here isn't necessarily a church matter, it's a primarily a personal matter. It's an employment issue between Philemon and Onesimus. It would have a secondary consequence upon the local church, but principally it's a matter between Philemon and Onesimus. And sometimes we do find that in, in life, work, family and church can have tremendous crossover. And we do have to be on our guard concerning this. So what was the issue? Well, I'm sure you'll remember that Onesimus, he was a slave or an employee of Philemon. He has been an employee who is described as being unprofitable. And if he'd been put through an appraisal system, he would be found wanting. And there would be a number of issues concerning his conduct and his performance. And it's resulted in him running away. He's left uh, Colossae and he's gone and ends up in Rome. Now, again, we have to be careful that we don't apply what today people might think to the standards that were there and the beliefs to what we think was happening there to what perhaps was really happening. Now, there's no suggestion in the text that Onesimus has been treated unfairly or that Onesimus is running to flee his slavery. The implication by some today may be that he's just some kind of freedom fighter trying to gain his liberty. And we don't get that from this. But we find that he has been negligent of his duties, and certainly in the eyes of the law at that time, Onesimus is guilty of running away and is liable for capture. And there were many that would be out at this time looking for slaves, known as slave captures. And if they caught him, he would be liable for severe punishment. We find also that Philemon is not identified as somebody being cruel or hard or unpleasant in any way, but rather in the context, we can, imply, we can understand him to be loving, a godly householder. Verse 6 and 7, the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by the brother. And so Paul has identified Philemon to be a man who is an encourager, a man of great love to the brethren, not somebody that is cruel and harsh. But Onesimus has now been converted. He's now with Paul in Rome, and that's a wonderful providence and miracle in and of itself. And Paul is now going to mediate on behalf of Onesimus with Philemon. He's going to be the go-between. We perhaps think about the function of the high priest interceding on behalf of the people. The people can't come to God in their own stead. They need that one that will stand between them and God. Remember Moses on Sinai after the people had sinned with the golden calf. There he stands and before God he pleads on behalf of the people. And in the most supreme example, we have the Lord Jesus Christ standing for his people, representing his people, paying for his people, and now interceding on their behalf. So if you turn to Hebrews chapter 4, we see the function of Christ as great high priest. Neither is any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that's passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. 
For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Apostle Paul would write in 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 4, there we find, or verse 3 rather, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So Paul is going to intercede on behalf of Onesimus with Philemon. He's going to have to do this sensitively. He's going to have to use all of the experience and divine help uh, that the Lord can give him, will give him, and he comes to deal with this very uh, issue that will require him to demonstrate his pastoral concern for this man and for Philemon. So in one aspect, this is an employment issue, but in another aspect, this is an issue between two people that he loves and esteems in the Lord. You see how much he loves Philemon, and also later on in Philemon, you see how much Onesimus means to him. There he says in verse 10, I have begotten him in my bonds. And so he's wanting to reconcile these two brothers together over this issue. But another dimension is that this could easily be a cause of division, disunity and fracture in the local church. And so there has to be very careful handling of this matter. So how can Paul repair the, approach, uh, repair the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus? Well, let's think, secondly, about the approach that he does not take. It could be tempting for Paul, or indeed us, if it were us there, to take a situation and think to ourselves, well, we're going to just tell Philemon what he's got to do. We're going to take a very authoritative approach. Paul could state that he is an apostle. He could state his authority. He could state that he needs to be listened to. He could give his verdict and insist that his demands are obeyed. He could have taken a very heavy-handed approach. We perhaps can see this in history, particularly in churches, and you can see this perhaps taking place even today, that there can be a heavy oversight by the minister, elders, and deacons of the local church. Do as I say, because of the position that I hold. It could be more subtle. It could be a sense in which you need to do as I say, because you're not going to win the theological battle that is going to ensue between us. And I'm sure we could spend a little while tonight afterwards thinking about very unedifying examples of how this may have taken place in our experience or indeed in history that we may be familiar with. Now that's not to say that there are never times when a direct and robust course of action is not required. Again, Paul very strongly deals with the Corinthian issue. He's very much incensed by the departure of the Galatians from the true gospel of Christ. But the heavy-handed approach is not always the best. It's not the one that we see used most frequently by the apostles or indeed by the Saviour. You do see the Saviour tipping over the money table changes, or the money changes tables, rather, 
and driving out the, the, the people selling doves. But you do see him very often with his forgetful and backsliding disciples being corrected in a very loving and a very careful way. And so there is no evidence of harshness or rebuke for them in that, in that very dismissive way that perhaps we might have. So what approach does Paul take? Thirdly, we find in verse 8, Paul says this, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I could be bold. I have enough authority to enjoin, or indeed that means to command you to do that which is convenient or that which is right. So if we put it perhaps in the terms we might understand, Paul is saying, I have enough authority to command you to do the right thing. I could take this approach. It wouldn't be wrong. It wouldn't necessarily be overstepping the mark. He could say to Philemon, look, brother, Philemon, you know how Onesimus has gone away and done what he has done. Now, as a Christian, you need to welcome him back. You have to reinstate him into your home. You have to forget his wrongs and remember that he's now under grace. But instead, Paul says this in verse 9, Yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged and now also prisoner of Jesus Christ. That word beseech means to appeal. He's saying, for love's sake, I would rather appeal to you because I am Paul the aged one, Paul the elderly one, and now a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I am an old man. He's not trying to show himself to be superior, but rather identifying his weakness and vulnerability. I'm an old man. I'm going to appeal to you on behalf of Onesimus for love's sake. And so Paul adopts the approach of love. Why does he do that? Well, firstly, it disarms Paul, uh, disarms Philemon. He can't really argue with that. He can't really say to Paul, well, I'm not going to, because he would evidence himself to be not very loving himself. Secondly, if Philemon receives Onesimus in love, he will be established forever. If, however, Philemon has Onesimus thrust upon him, there will be perhaps resentment on behalf of Philemon, and over time there will be a fracturing of that relationship. And Paul isn't just about administering a short-term pastor to deal with a fracture that is there. He wants to have deep and complete healing between these now two brothers. Thirdly, Paul is very much aware as to what human nature is like. We are much more likely to respond positively to something if we are not being compelled to do it. You know the, the adage of the, the carrot and the stick. You sometimes want to get a donkey to go and do what you want it to do. Well, sometimes it's better to give it the carrot than it is to try and drive it with the stick. And human nature is much more likely to uh, identify with that carrot approach, that enticing approach, than to be feeling that we are being forced or compelled to do something 
against our choice. Fourthly, Paul knows Philemon. And Philemon has already demonstrated he is a man of love, he's a man of faith, and that love has been seen by many round about. And so when you look at his testimony, Paul says, hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. And specifically to Philemon, we have great joy and consolation in thy love because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by the brother. Paul has confidence in appealing to Philemon in love because Philemon is a man of love and demonstrates his love to the people round about. His testimony has gone before. And the fifth reason, there may be others, but as to why Paul would take this approach of love is that this is the way of the Saviour. Love to the undeserving. As Philemon has experienced the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, these mentioned of in verse number three, Paul is encouraging and exhorting for love's sake Philemon to receive Onesimus in that manner. As Philemon has experienced the grace and peace of God, the love of God in great measure, he can extend that to Onesimus as well. And so Paul deals with Onesimus, uh, deals with Philemon in love. For love's sake, I rather beseech thee being one, Paul the aged, now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Even when we think about the gospel, there are times, as you read 2 Corinthians 5, when you speak in strong terms. Paul says there, knowing therefore the terror of the law, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also made manifest in your consciences. But at other times, we find in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 this time, the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judged if one died for all, then were all dead. And so as Paul deals with Onesimus here and Philemon, he's very much taking that root of love, for love's sake. And likewise, that should translate into our presentation and preaching of the gospel. Yes, there are times when we have to preach the terror of the Lord, but it also must be manifested of that it's out of that duty and that, that desire that the love of Christ is constraining us. And so we must be very careful in that. In the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, we find this in Proverbs 15, verse 1, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous wounds stir up anger. And Philemon here is being exhorted through soft words to receive Onesimus. And Paul is very much putting into practice what Peter would say to the church that he was writing to in 1 Peter chapter 5 about not being heavy-handed, not uh, having that overbearing nature. We find there in 1 Peter 5, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, yet all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace 
to the humble. So Paul here, in beginning to deal with this very sensitive matter of Philemon with Onesimus, there's an approach that he could have taken, which he does not take. Instead, he takes that soft answer, which turns away wrath, and if for love's sake, he implores, he pleads with Philemon to receive Onesimus. And we will find out, the Lord's willing, how Paul will then go on to develop this argument. Well, may we have that same kind of example, that same kind of attitude of Paul, that we do things out of love's sake rather than because we think that we are right and we have to have our rights um, administered and upheld. Well, may the Lord help us and apply his word to our hearts.